I want to call your attention now to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, <coughs> chapter 31. And we want to read, beginning at verse 31, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for this wonderful portion. Speak to us through it, we pray. Open our eyes to understand and believe it and receive it. And to make it our own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Old Testament points forward to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, we have promises and prophecies and pictures, we might say, illustrations of the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, and his accomplishment of redemption, and the inauguration of his kingdom. And these words that we have read here from the prophet Jeremiah is one of the great prophecies in the Old Testament that tell of this new covenant this new arrangement, this new solemn agreement that would be ratified by Jesus Christ when he came to this earth and that would be enjoyed by those who are saved by his grace and through his blood and righteousness. You notice it is called a new covenant. Verse 31, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. New 
is contrasted with something old or something previous. The previous covenant that is implied here that was in existence in Jeremiah's own day is a covenant that is described in verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The old covenant is defined here as the covenant that was inaugurated at Mount Sinai under the hand of Moses. That's the old covenant. How do we know that the new covenant that Jeremiah is speaking of here by inspiration as a prophet of God is in fact referring to Jesus Christ and the New Testament or the New Covenant, the new arrangement and the new economy, uh, spiritually speaking, that the Lord Jesus Christ brought. We know because not once but twice in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, this very passage is quoted and that is the the absolute proof. I read one of those passages uh, here a moment, a few moments ago in the reading, but let me read the other passage from Hebrews uh, chapter eight. Just listen to how Jeremiah thirty one is explained, quoted here in Hebrews chapter eight. Speaking of the, the contrast here in, in the context of the book of Hebrews, the contrast is between the covenant that was made with Israel at Mount Sinai and all that it involved in contrast with the covenant that is in Christ and all that it involves. So, It says, speaking of Christ, now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second or the new covenant. If the first one had been sufficient and had accomplished all that needed to be accomplished, then there wouldn't have been a need for a second or a new testament or covenant. For finding fault with them, that is, with the the provisions of the first covenant, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So we have this New Testament explanation and interpretation of Jeremiah's prophecy. And we see it quoted more briefly, but to the same effect, two chapters later in Hebrews chapter 10, as I read in your hearing earlier. That brings me then to underscore this vital principle of interpretation of Holy Scripture. The Old Testament is explained by the New Testament. The Old Testament is interpreted by the New Testament. That means, among other things, that we do not look to the Old Covenant to explain the Old Covenant. We look to the New Covenant to explain the Old Covenant. The New Testament or the New Covenant is the final word. It is the explanation of what came before. And a failure to follow this simple principle of interpretation has led to a variety of errors and confusion. I think we could have a whole message just on the different errors that have arisen, failing to recognize that the New Testament is the final word and the New Testament explains to us and interprets to us the old. I'll just mention a couple of things just briefly here in passing. Ignoring Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 and the explanation that it gives for Jeremiah 31, some have declared that Jeremiah 31 has nothing to do with the New Testament church. Rather, it is all about a future Jewish millennium. And of course, that's because they they take that view because it's stated in terms of a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah there in verse 31. But that is simply a denial of Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, which tell us explicitly that this prophecy is fulfilled in Christ. The new covenant is the gospel of Christ and the fullness of redemption accomplished and displayed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me be as clear as I can and state it this way. If the New Testament 
tells us that an Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled, then it is fulfilled. If, again, if, if in the New Testament we read, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah or Joel or, or whoever it may be, then this is that. We have no right to come along and say, well, this is not really that. No, if, if the New Testament says this is what the Old Testament meant, then we have no right or reason to disagree. On the other hand, others fail to see the newness of the new covenant and insist that there's only one covenant with various administrations and that becomes a basis to impose the old upon the new and impose the old covenant into the new covenant. And that, again, is simply a failure to follow this, this simple but essential and vital principle that the New Testament is the final interpreter of the Old Testament. Well, having said that, let me also say this. I don't claim to have all the answers uh, on this subject that is in some ways complex. I don't know that anyone has all the answers uh, among mortal men, but I do believe that we must maintain this rule of interpretation, that the New Testament is the final word. And a proper understanding of the Old Covenant can only be found in the New Covenant clarification and definition of it. That is simply letting Scripture interpret itself. So all that in in way of introduction here, the new covenant then that Jeremiah is talking about here is undoubtedly in Christ. It is the spiritual arrangement, the spiritual economy that presently Exists and that is in operation today, that has been inaugurated and ratified by Christ as a mediator between God and man. Now, back to Jeremiah more closely here. Notice how that the Old Covenant is said to be fragile, breakable, not durable. It could be broken, and in fact, it was broken. He says there in verse 32, My covenant they break, or they broke. The ones who came out of Egypt and were at Mount Sinai with Moses, when that Mosaic covenant was uh, established, the people of Israel broke that covenant. They broke it before Moses had even come down from the mountain. They were worshiping a golden calf and carrying on like the heathen. Moses, in a way, pictured their breaking of the covenant when he threw down those stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments written on them and they 
those tablets broke and shattered on the ground. That was a, an emblem of what the people had done. They had broken God's covenant. My covenant they break, he says, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. God says, I was faithful to them, but they were not faithful to me. I kept my part of the covenant. They did not keep their part. God compares himself to a faithful husband with an unfaithful wife. And the people of Israel went on repeatedly to break the covenant. More times almost than we can count in that part of of the Old Testament. So with all this background, in the time that remains, I want to consider with you the features of the new covenant that are mentioned here in verses 33 and 34. And there are four, if you outline them, there are four features of the new covenant mentioned here that are glorious and marvelous, amazing, soul-thrilling, soul-liberating. They are advantages over the Old Covenant. They are, we might say, improvements over the Old Covenant. Notice, first of all, in verse 33, God puts his law into the heart. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And what's being described here is obviously more than what we were considering in the previous hour about uh, that every man in some measure has knowledge of right and wrong, has the law of God written uh, in his heart in a sense of conscience. Everyone knows that it's wrong to steal. If you don't think so, try to steal something from someone. And you'll find out everyone knows it's wrong to steal. That's the law of God written in the heart. But what Jeremiah is prophesying here goes beyond that. It's not just the knowledge of God's will, but it is a love for God's will. It is the power to obey God's will. This is an internalized principle of obedience, a love for God's law. It implies a God-given desire to obey God. And to some imperfect degree, an ability to obey Him. And God's prompting us and causing us to obey Him. That's what's in view here. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. The law in view here, by the way, in light of all the New Testament, is the moral law of God. 
It's the law that's permanent, that is abiding. It's not just laws that pertained to the nation of Israel uh, at that point in time and that have that no longer apply or even the ceremonial laws that were fulfilled in Christ and so on. This is the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments and further summarized by our Lord Jesus in simply two commandments, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law that's written in the heart, internalized in Christ. In this new covenant, those who are are partakers of this new covenant come to love God and love everything that comes from God and everything that has to do with God. And because he's the law giver, we love his law. It's a reflection of his own character. In words of the New Testament, we establish the law. And and we could talk quite a while to explain that statement, but I'll, I'll forbear. We read furthermore that God's law is holy, just, and good. God's law is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Some speak of God's law in, 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 in nothing but negative terms, and they despise the idea of, of a rule and a command. Listen, that, that's not in keeping with what we see in God's word. God's law is holy and just and good. And the Apostle Paul, writing again in the book of Romans, says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He says, internally, I love God's law. And we find delight in being under the law to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 21. One who is a partaker and a participant in this new covenant is not lawless. But he loves God's law. We recognize our need to be governed, to be guided. And God's law plays a role in the Christian life. It's not the basis of our acceptance with God, but it is a way by which we show our gratitude to him by doing the things that are pleasing in his sight. And so I hope that this impresses upon us today a sense, if you're a believer in Christ and you're a a member of this covenant, that it is an immense privilege and joy to have the law of God in your heart. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be afraid of. It is something to be thankful for and something to rejoice in. God has done us a favor by internalizing his rule in our very heart, in the very depths and the very vitals of our being. So what does this mean then for those who are unbelievers, who are not members 
to this covenant and not involved in this covenant in Christ means that in this sense, the law of God is not upon their heart. It remains written outwardly, but not inwardly. To use the Old Testament way of speaking, it's only written in tablets of stone and not upon the living heart. Those who are outside of Christ don't like the law of God. They don't want anything to do with the law of God. They want to keep ignorant of it as much as they can. And the part that they cannot remain ignorant of, they reject and violate. And they have all kinds of methods to quiet their conscience when they have violated God's law. And though they have some information from God, they don't have the disposition to follow that information. Oh, it's a sad state not to have the law of God internalized in your heart. Well, the second blessing of the new covenant that is mentioned here is in the end of verse 33 where he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I would call this mutual ownership of God and his people. God belongs to them and they belong to him. It's, it's, it's a happy marriage, if you will, to use the illustration used in the previous verse. Those who are in Christ and in this new covenant of salvation in him, we belong to him. and He belongs to us. We claim him and he claims us. He is our portion and we are said to be his portion. It's a marvelous and amazing thing. There are similar words used, as you probably know, with regard to the old covenant, where God says to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people, and so on. So what's the difference here? What's new about this in this new covenant in Christ? What's new is this. The relationship cannot be broken. It is a lasting and an enduring covenant relationship and mutual ownership. In other words, to use the illustration of marriage, there's no divorce from Christ because we belong to him and he belongs to us and he keeps us faithful to him. He is faithful to us and he keeps us faithful to him. And he calls us his peculiar people, his special people in a way better than Israel under the old covenant was his uh, peculiar treasure. And so again, let this sink into your heart, believer in Christ. What a privilege, what an honor it is to be owned by God, to be claimed, for him to say, this is my child. 
I am his heavenly father. And yes, we won't take time to look at all the scriptures, but God goes so far as to adopt us into his family. The scriptures teach as his dear children, as heirs of his glory, as joint heirs with his only begotten son. That's all laid out there in Romans chapter 8. And this close relationship to him cannot be severed. This covenant cannot be broken. You say, well, what happens when a believer in Christ sins? And yes, we do sin. And we sin more than we even comprehend. Here's what happens. God doesn't divorce us. But as a heavenly father, he corrects us. He chastens us. And according to Hebrews chapter 12, he chastens and corrects every one of his children. And oh, how we need it. Where would we be without the the correction that our loving heavenly father gives us? But he doesn't throw us out of the house. He doesn't throw us out of the family. He, He restores us. He corrects us. And beloved, there's great comfort and peace and assurance in knowing that God will never disown me. He will correct me. He will get the rod and give me a spiritual spanking if I need it. But he will never disown me. This is one of the great benefits of the new covenant in Christ. And I must say this, this mutual ownership, this mutual claiming of one another, God of us and we of him, it will extend on and continue on in ages of glory everlasting. Just listen to these breathtaking words from Revelation chapter 21. Here is a scene of heaven called the New Jerusalem. And the Apostle John writes, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. His people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. That's the same language that Jeremiah 31 uses. They will be God's people and God will be their God. This mutual ownership does not end with this world. It goes on into eternity. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Let me skip down here to verse 7 of Revelation 21. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That's what God says concerning all who are in Christ and who are participants in this covenant of grace in him. But what must we say about those who are not? participants in this covenant 
God is not their God. That is to say, they don't own him. They don't claim him. And he doesn't claim them. He doesn't own them. And on the judgment day, Jesus says, I will declare unto them, I never knew you. You were never mine. I was never yours. I cannot imagine any words that could cross the auditory canal worse than those. I never knew you. Spoken by Jesus himself. Oh, the blessings of the new covenant are are much greater than we imagine. When he says, you are mine. I know you. And you know me. But now let's look at a third thing quickly in verse 34. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. Those in Christ, in this new covenant in Christ, have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And I'm just giving a very brief summary of all that is is given here in a very uh, seed form. Those in Christ have the Holy Spirit residing in them. You know, Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 14 that he would come and abide with them. And he's not speaking of a, a material or physical presence because he ascended up into heaven. He's talking about sending the Holy Spirit to dwell with them and to abide with them. And he lays that out there in John chapter 14. There is the ministry of the Holy Spirit within that teaches us, that, that, that illuminates our minds to Holy Scripture. Now, you might read Jeremiah 31, 34 and say, well, then that means we, we don't need to be doing what we're doing here today. We don't need a preacher. We don't need a teacher because we have the Holy Spirit to teach us. Well, of course, the New Testament does say in precept as well as show by example that God equips men to teach his word to others. And, and this is no uh, denial of that principle. But so where's the difference? What's new here? The difference is in the students. In the Old Testament, prophets of God taught the people, but the people wouldn't learn, wouldn't listen. They were hard-hearted. They were stiff-necked, as it says. They rejected the teaching. The difference here is in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, in Christ, the people of God here, they have receptive hearts. They're eager to learn. I think we could even go so far as to say that preachers and teachers only remind and reinforce what the Holy Spirit has taught in the heart of a believer. We preach to a friendly crowd. 
not a hard-hearted crowd. Believers are ready to hear and eager to hear and ready to receive the things of God and to be reminded and maybe to learn more. (coughs) Well, I'm tempted to talk a little bit about regenerate church membership here from, from this verse where it says that they will all know me from the least unto the greatest. But that's another message. Let me just underscore this point in our minds today. Consider what a privilege it is to know God intimately, to know that he lives within me, that his spirit dwells in me, that that he takes up residence within me, that he holds communion with me. Beloved, this is an unspeakable privilege and blessing. Do you know something of it? Do you rejoice in it? Are you conscious of his presence and his guiding of your life, his protecting you from evil, his giving you strength to resist temptation? How thankful we ought to be that in the new covenant, we know the Lord and, and we know him inwardly and intimately. What does this mean then for those who are not in Christ and are not partakers of this covenant? Well, they are only taught outwardly, but not inwardly. And that outward teaching is to no avail. They may hear a message, but it doesn't resonate. It doesn't remain with them. It doesn't help. It doesn't change. There's no inward teaching of the Holy Spirit going on as man outwardly teaches. Those outside of Christ are strangers to him. He is a God who is afar off, not one who is near. There's no experience and experiential knowledge of him. At best, those outside of Christ only know a little about God. They don't really know God. And my friends, there is an eternity of difference between knowing about God and knowing God. The devil himself knows about God. He knows more about God than than many people but he doesn't know God in this sense fourthly and finally we see at the end of verse 34 this great benefit and advantage of the new covenant I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of all our sins. And he says, I will remember their sin no more. What does it mean for God not to remember sin? Well, to remember it is to bring it up. To review it. To revisit it. To bring it to memory. 
in the sense of reintroducing it into his court, as it were, to re-adjudicate the case. And what Jeremiah is telling us here, and God through Jeremiah, is that in Christ, our sins are so put away, our case is so settled, that the case will never be reopened. God's court has been adjourned. Justice has been satisfied through Christ. Our surety, who answered for our sins, who answered for our crimes, who paid our penalty. And God says, I will remember their sin no more. He won't bring them up again. They've already been dealt with. The case is closed. There's a full pardon. There's no double jeopardy, as we say, or no cold case of sin that can be reopened because uh, new evidence has been brought to light and, and so on. No, in Christ, God says, I will remember their sin no more. Sometimes men forgive or appear to forgive because they have no choice. They don't have any any way of getting revenge and, and settling the score. And so they have no choice and so they go ahead and forgive. But not so with God. He could punish us if he pleased. He has the power to get vengeance. But his forgiveness is a deliberate act of grace in the new covenant. And he has made this forgiveness agreeable to his justice by the substitutionary work of Christ in the place of sinners. He has satisfied what God's justice demands. And so our case is settled because of Christ. Oh, what amazing grace. Oh, what joy to know that we're at peace with God and always will be. And that it doesn't depend upon my efforts, which are so poor and feeble and failing. It depends upon the perfect accomplishment of Christ in my place. And you might say, well, that sounds like then you're free to sin and not have to pay a price for it if Christ has already paid the price for all your sin. No, listen, I was trying to explain this to someone very recently. Far from being an encouragement to sin, this new covenant is an impediment to sin in a heart in which the law of God has been written and there is this intimacy with God and new life in Christ. No. When we do sin, we go to Him and we find forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We serve the Lord with gratitude for 
forgiveness, not making an effort to gain forgiveness. And the difference between those two concepts is is of eternal and enormous proportions. We don't do good to try to gain favor with God. We do our best to show how much we appreciate what he has already done for us in reconciling us to himself through the work of Christ and allowing us to be partakers of this new covenant in Christ. Well, let me just answer a question here. Well, before I do that, I must add this. If to be in the new covenant means that your sins are forgiven and not remembered anymore, then what does it mean to be outside of the covenant and to be lost in your sins? It means that God will remember your sins. It means that every one of them is a current issue in his court. And even though maybe it's been long ago and far away and you've already forgotten about it, he hasn't forgotten about one of your sins. And he will bring them up all on judgment day. And there's no statute of limitations. It's probably impossible for us to even imagine what the rap sheet on any one of us will look like outside of Christ. But those who die in their sins outside of him will answer to God for all their sins and they'll answer to him for all eternity. And punishment is certain. There's no doubt about it. And so what we have here in this text is is very encouraging and comforting to those who are in Christ, and it ought to be very alarming to those who are not in Christ. And perhaps some have the question, and this is what is just a parenthetical here, why is it spoken of in terms of then the house of Israel and the house of Judah if it is really referring to, to people in in the New Testament time, whether they are Jew or Gentile. I would simply answer this way. First of all, that was the language of Jeremiah's readers. That was what they were able to comprehend and and understand. According to the New Testament, it would come to include Gentiles who would be saved and would be grafted in, as it were, and who would become Jews spiritually as Paul says there in Romans 2, he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, but who is one inwardly. And it, and the promises made to Abraham are to his seed, singular seed, which is Christ, and all who are in Christ then are the seed of Abraham, whether they be of Jewish origin or of Gentile origin. But I would also add this, the fulfillment of this prophecy here, according to Romans 11, and we'll not even take time to turn and read it. You can do that on your own and work it out. But the fulfillment of this promise includes an ethnic dimension for Jewish people who repent and believe on Christ 
and a significant number of ethnic Jews will be and are being brought into this new covenant. Thank the Lord. So let me hasten to, uh, to close with these words. Believer in Christ, let us rejoice. Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice to be a party to this new covenant. We have every reason to rejoice this day in spite of all of the evil that is in this world and all of the bad news that we're bombarded with day and night. Let us lift our our eyes above this world and, and see the joy of being in Christ. And let us worship and rejoice and delight in God. And to those who are lost, let me say this. This passage tells you what you're missing out on. Look at what you're forfeiting by not believing on Christ. You miss out on God's law being written in your heart, being God's people. And the inward knowledge and indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. And you miss out on the forgiveness of your sins. And look where you stand. Lost. Lawless. A rebel against God. Spiritually dead. Separated from God. Ignorant of Him. Guilty before Him. Condemned and without hope. Do you not see abundant reason to turn from your sin and come to Christ and become a party to this glorious covenant of salvation in Christ?